Chapter Eighteen of From Jest to Earnest by Edward P. Rowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Eighteen, Hemstead's Heavy Gun and Its Recoil. The day after the ball had its proverbial character, and Saturday was so long and dismal to several of the revellers that it occurred to them that their pleasure had been purchased rather dearly. It seemed an odd coincidence that those who had been bent on securing all the pleasure possible, with no other thought, suffered the most. Bell and Addie could scarcely endure their own company. They were so weary and stupid, and they yawned through the day irritable and disheveled, for it was too stormy for callers. De Forest did not appear until dinner, and then came down moody and taciturn. The young ladies had heard of his illness the evening before with significant glances. Mrs. Marchmont partly surmised the truth, but politely ignored the matter, treating it only as a sudden indisposition. And so the affair was passed over, as such matters usually are in fashionable life, until they reach a stage too pronounced for polite blindness. De Forest but dimly recollected the events of the preceding evening. He was quite certain, however, that he had been drunk, and had made a fool of himself. Though his conscience was not over-tender upon this subject, and though such occurrences were not so exceedingly rare in fashionable life as to be very shocking, he still had the training and instinct of a gentleman to a sufficient degree to feel deep mortification. If he had become tipsy among those of his own sex, or while off on a fishing excursion, he would have regarded it as a light matter, but even in his eyes, intoxication at an evening company, and before the girl in whose estimation he most wished to stand well, was a very serious matter. He could not remember much after going a second time to the supper-room in compliance with Lottie's request, but had a vague impression that she and Hemstead had brought him home. He was left in torturing uncertainty how far he had disgraced himself because it was a subject concerning which he could not bring himself to make inquiries, that those he met at the dinner-table treated him with their usual quiet politeness proved nothing. Human faces mask more thoughts than are expressed. Hemstead's grave silence was somewhat significant, but De Forest cared so little for his opinion that he scarcely heeded the student's manner. Lottie Marsden was the one he most wished, and yet most dreaded to see but Lottie did not appear. Whether it was true, as she believed or not, that she was the more guilty, she certainly was the greater sufferer, and that Saturday became the longest and dreariest period of pain that she had ever experienced. She awoke in the morning with a nervous headache, which grew so severe that she declined to leave her room during the day. Bell, Addie, and her aunt all offered to do anything in their power but she only asked to be left alone. She was so unstrung that even words of kindness and solicitude jarred like discord. It was torture to think, and yet her brain was unnaturally active. Everything presented itself in the most painfully bare and accurate manner. The glamour faded out of her gay young life, and she saw only the hard lines of fact. Hemstead's words repeated themselves over and over again and in their light she questioned the past closely. It was not in keeping with her positive nature and strong mind to do things by halves. 
with fixed and steady scrutiny she reviewed the motives of her life and estimated the results they were so unsatisfactory as to startle her although the spent years had been filled with continuous and varied activity what had she accomplished for herself or any one else were not all her past days like water spilled on barren sands producing nothing as she had before intimated she had been receiving homage flattery and even love all her life and yet now her heart had no treasures to which she could turn in solid satisfaction nor could memory recall efforts like that she saw miss martell making in behalf of harcourt the adulation received was now empty breath and forgotten words and nothing substantial or comforting remained but if memory could recall little good accomplished it placed in long and dark array many scenes that she would gladly have forgotten what can be worse what need we fear more than to be left alone forever with a guilty and accusing conscience and no respite no solace what perdition need a man shrink from more than to go away from his earthly life to be alone with memory a pale and silent spectre who will turn the pages of his daily record and point to what was and what might have been a shallow-minded girl would have been incapable of this searching self-analysis a weak irresolute girl like bel parton would have taken a sedative and escaped a miserable day in sleep but with all her faults lottie abounded in practical common sense and hemstead's words and her own experience suggested that she might be doing herself a very great wrong she felt that it was no light matter to make one's whole life a blunder and to invest all one's years and energies in what paid no better interest than what she had received that day her physical pain and mental distress acted and reacted upon each other until at last wearied out she sobbed herself to sleep both de forest and hemstead were greatly in hopes that she would be at the supper-table but they did not see her that day the former with his aching head and heavy heart learned if never before that the way of the transgressor is hard but though the latter could not be regarded as a transgressor his way was hard also that long day and he whom lottie in the memory of his severe words regarded somewhat as her stern accuser would have been more than ready to take all her pains and woes upon himself could he have relieved her he now bitterly condemned himself for having been too harsh in the wholesome truth he had brought home to the nattered girl it was rather severe treatment still she was vigorous and would be all the better for it but now her faithful physician as he heard how ill and suffering she was almost wished that he had but faintly suggested the truth in homeopathic doses at the same time he supposed that her indisposition was caused more by her shame and grief at the conduct of de forest than by anything he had said the impression that she was attached or engaged to de forest was becoming almost a conviction though lottie had never by a word bound herself to her cousin yet her aunt and all the household regarded her as virtually engaged to him and expected that the marriage would eventually occur with hemstead they regarded her illness and seclusion as the result of her mortification at his behavior and underneath their politic politeness were very indignant at his folly but they expected that the trouble would soon blow over as a matter of course 
the mantle of charity for young men as rich and well-connected as de forest is very large and then this slip could be regarded somewhat in the light of an accident for when it became evident that bell understood the nature of de forest's spell as the coachman called it lottie had taken pains to insist that it was an accident for which she was chiefly to blame and had also said as much to mrs marchmont thus they all concluded that her relations with de forest would not be disturbed harcourt was the happiest of the party but it must be confessed that clearer than any law points he saw still among blooming exotics a being far more rare and beautiful who stood before him the whole day with clasped hands and entreating eyes whose only request was be a true man under the inspiration of her words and manner he began to hope that he might eventually grant her request as far as lottie's intruding image would permit hemstead concentrated all his energies on the great sermon the elaborate effort of many months that he expected to preach on the morrow he hoped that lottie and indeed all would be there for it seemed that if they would only give him their thoughtful attention he would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were in god's hands and that it would be worse than folly not to submit to his shaping and moulding discipline at last sunday morning came it was a cold chilly leaden day and even a glance from the windows gave one a shivering sense of discomfort the gloom of nature seemed to shadow the faces of some of the party as they gathered at a late breakfast and of none was this more true than of lottie marsden as pale and languid she took her wonted place her greeting of de forest was most kindly and he seemed greatly reassured and brightened up instantly but lottie's face did not lose its deep dejection to the others she appeared to take very little notice of hemstead but he thought that he observed her eyes furtively seeking his face with a questioning expression once he answered her glance with such a frank sunny smile that her own face lighted up as they were passing into the parlor he said in a low tone i wished a hundred times yesterday that i could bear your headache for you that is more kind than just it is right that i should get my deserts she replied shaking her head heaven save us from our deserts he answered quickly before she could speak again de forest was by her side and said let me wheel the lounge up to the fire and i will read anything you wish this morning oh no i'm going to church miss lottie i beg of you not to go you are not able yes i am the air will do me good it's the sunday before christmas julian and we both ought to be at church oh certainly i'll go if you wish it i hope your sermon will do me good mr hemstead i'm woefully blue she said as she left the room to prepare for church i think it will he replied for i have prepared it with a great deal of care the building was a small but pretty gothic structure and its sacred quiet did seem to lottie somewhat like a refuge with an interest such as she had never felt in the elegant city temple she waited for the service to begin honestly hoping that there might be something that would comfort and reassure but hemstead went through the preliminary services with but indifferent grace and effect he was embarrassed and awkward as is usually the case with those who have seldom faced an audience 
and who are naturally very diffident. But as he entered upon his sermon, his self-consciousness began to pass away, and he spoke with increasing power and effect. He took as his text words from the eleventh chapter of St. John, wherein Jesus declares to his disciples, in regard to the death of Lazarus, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. The importance of faith, believing as the source of Christian life, and the ground of man's acceptance with God, was his subject, from which he wandered somewhat, a course often observed in the ministerial Tyro. He presented his views strongly, however, but they were partial and unripe, giving but one side of the truth, and therefore calculated to do injury rather than good. He did not, he could not, overestimate the importance of faith, but he unwittingly misrepresented God in his efforts to inspire his faith and the Christian life resulting, and he undervalued our earthly state and its interests. He sketched in strong outlines the experience of the little family at Bethany, portraying with vivid realism the suffering of the man whom Jesus loved, the anxiety of the sisters when Lazarus became ill, this anxiety passing into fear, dread, sickening certainty and despair, the anguish of bereavement, the loneliness and heartbreaking sorrow of four days, and that most agonized wrench of the heart when the beloved form is left alone to corrupt in the dark and silent sepulchre. Having presented this picture in such true and sombre colors that the gloom was reflected from the faces of all his hearers, they being reminded that this would be their lot ere long. He passed suddenly from the painful scenes of Bethany to Bethabara beyond Jordan, where was sojourning the mysterious prophet of Nazareth, who had so often proved his power to heal every disease. He enlarged upon the fact that Jesus, seeing all the suffering at Bethany, which he could change by a word into gladness, did not interfere but decreed that the terrible ordeal should be endured to the bitter end. From this he reasoned that the transient sorrows of the household at Bethany were of little moment, and that God, in the advancement of his own glory and the accomplishment of his great plans, would never turn aside because his human children in their short-sighted weakness would stay his heavy hand if they could. He knew all that was occurring at Bethany, but calmly permitted it to take place, and in this case it was the same as if he had willed it. He then proceeded to show that the divine purpose had not only a wide and general sweep, embracing the race and extending through all time, but that there was a minute providence encompassing each life. If there were any good in us, God would bring it out, nor would he spare us in the effort. The preacher, unfortunately and unconsciously to himself, gave the impression that God acted on the principle that he could accomplish far more with the rod of affliction than with anything else, and that when he fully set about the task of winning a soul from sin, his first step was to stretch it upon the rack of some kind of suffering. He also intensified this painful impression by giving the idea that God thought little of the processes, which might be so painful to us, but fixed his eye only on the result. If people became sullen, rebellious, or reckless under his discipline, they were like misshapen clay that the potter must cast aside. The crude ore must go into the furnace, and if there was good metal in it, the fact would appear. Sooner or later, he said, 
God will put every soul into the crucible of affliction. Sooner or later we shall all be passing through scenes like that of the family at Bethany. We may not hope to escape. God means we shall not, as Christ firmly, while seeing all, left events at Bethany to their designed course. So he will as surely and steadily carry out the discipline which he, as the unerring physician of the soul, sees that each one of us requires. Does the refiner hesitate to put the crude ore into the crucible? Does the sculptor shrink from chiseling the shapeless block into beauty? Does not the surgeon, with nerves of steel and pulse unquickened, cut near the very vitals of his agonized patient? He sees that it is necessary, in order to save from greater evil, and therefore he is as remorseless as fate. If to cure some transient physical infirmity man is justified in inflicting, nay, more, is compelled to inflict, so much suffering upon his fellow-creatures, how much more is God justified in his severest moral discipline, which has as its object our eternal health. Though we shrink from the sorrow, though we writhe under the pain, though our hearts break a thousand times, he will not waver his calm, steadfast purpose. He sees eternity, the present is as nothing to him. He will break our grasp from all earthly idols, even though he tear our bleeding hearts asunder. If we are trusting in aught save him, that upon which we are leaning will be snatched away, even though we fall at first into the depths of despairing sorrow. What he makes us suffer now is not to be considered, in view of his purpose to wean us from this world and prepare us for the next. Christ, as we learn from our text, is as inflexible as fate, and does not hesitate to secure the needful faith by remaining away, even though the message of the sisters was an entreaty in itself. Nay, more. He distinctly declares to his disciples, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. In conclusion, we assert that we ought to rise above our human weakness and co-work with God. Instead of clinging so to the present, we ought to think of the eternal future, and welcome the harshest discipline which prepares us for that future. We should mortify ourselves, trample our earthly natures under our feet, to that degree that we can bring ourselves to think less of earth, we shall think more of heaven. Our business, our earthly hopes and plans, our dearest ties, may be fatal snares to our souls. The husband may make an idol of his wife the mother of her child. God jealously watches. We should watch more jealously. The sisters may have been loving their brother and trusting to his protection more than in Christ. We should hold all earthly possessions in fear and trembling, as something not our own, but only committed for a brief time to our trust. We should remember that the one great object of this life is to secure that faith which leads to preparation for the life to come. The harsher our experiences are here, the better, if they more surely wean us from earth and all earthly things, and make eternity the habitation of our thoughts. We see how stern and resolute God is in his purpose to stamp out unbelief from the world. Jesus would not save the family at Bethany that he loved, the family that freely gave hospitality and love in return when nearly all the world was hostile. Do not think, then, that he will spare us. Let us, therefore, not spare ourselves. 
but with remorseless hands smite down every earthly object that hides from our view the wide ocean of eternity as the wise men from the east travelled steadily across arid wastes with eyes fixed only on the strange bright luminary that was guiding them to bethlehem so we should regard this world as a desert across which we must hasten to the presence of our god as hemstead forgot himself and became absorbed in his theme he spoke with impressiveness and power and everywhere throughout the audience was seen that thoughtful contraction of the brow and fixed gaze which betokened deep attention but upon the faces of nearly all was the expression of one listening to something painful this was especially true of miss martell and her father while harcourt's face grew cold and satirical lottie looked pale and sullen and de forest was evidently disgusted mr dimmerly fidgeted in his seat and even complacent mrs marchmont seemed a little ruffled and disturbed while her daughter addie was in a state of irritable protest against both preacher and sermon poor bell was merely frightened and conscience-stricken her usual condition after every sermon to which she listened as during the brief remnant of the service hemstead dropped into consciousness of the world around him he felt at first rather than saw the chill he had caused instead of a glowing answering to his own feelings as he looked more closely he imagined he detected a gloomy and forbidding expression on the faces turned towards him the gospel the message of good news that he had brought appeared to shadow the audience like a passing cloud after dismission the people aroused themselves as from an oppressive dream the few greetings and congratulations that he received as he passed down the aisle seemed formal and constrained and he thought a little insincere he was still more puzzled as he overheard miss martell say to harcourt at the door i am sorry you heard that sermon i am too he replied for it seemed true it's only a half-truth she said earnestly the lord deliver me then this half is more than i can stand lottie scarcely spoke during the drive home and hemstead noted with pain that her face had a hard defiant look it occurred to him that he had not seen any who appeared to have enjoyed the service there were long pauses at the dinner-table and after one of the longest mr dimmerly abruptly remarked in his sententious manner well nephew i suppose you gave us a powerful sermon this morning it has made us all deucedly uncomfortable anyhow but i've no doubt the old rule holds good the worse the medicine is to take the more certain to cure lottie's response to this remark was a ringing laugh in which the others in the inevitable reaction from the morbid gloom joined with a heartiness that was most annoying to the young clergyman you must excuse me mr hemstead said she after a moment i have had the blues all day and i have reached that point where i must either laugh or cry and prefer the former at the dinner-table hemstead stiffly bowed as his only response he was too chagrined puzzled and disappointed to venture upon a reply and after this one lurid gleam of unnatural mirth the murky gloom of the day seemed to settle down more heavily than before after dinner de forest tried to secure lottie's society for the afternoon the refusal was kind not careless as had been often the case 
Indeed, her whole manner towards him might be characterized as a grave, remorseful kindness, such as we might show towards a child or an inferior that we had wronged somewhat. De Forest, finding that Lottie would persist in going to her room, went to his also and took a long, comfortable nap. Bell wanted to talk about the sermon, but as Lottie would not talk about anything, she too soon forgot her spiritual anxieties in sleep. But Lottie sat and stared at her fire, and Hemstead, deserted by all, stared at the fire in the parlor, and both were sorely troubled and perplexed. End of chapter 18